when you look the other way as uh, as people are being shot in the street, it's then you're part of the problem. And we decided to not, not turn the other cheek. We, we decided to take action. listening to the Georgetown Public Policy Review podcast. My colleague Eric Dank and I had the chance to sit down with former representative and GU Politics fellow Ileana Ross-Leitinen. Ross-Leitinen proudly represented Florida's 27th Congressional District. She was born in Havana, Cuba in July 1952. At the age of eight, her family was forced to flee from the oppressive regime of Fidel Castro. The family settled in Miami and put down permanent roots in the community. She began her career as a Florida certified teacher. She also founded and served as the principal and teacher of a private bilingual elementary school. Ileana was inspired to enter public service by many of the parents and students there to fight on their behalf for a stronger educational system, lower taxes, and a brighter economic future. In 1982, she was elected to the Florida State House of Representatives and the Florida Senate in 1986, becoming the first Hispanic woman to serve in either body. She made history again when she was elected to the U.S. House of Representatives in 1989, the first Hispanic woman to serve in Congress. Please enjoy our conversation about education, the efficacy of sanctions, and the various roles of the state and federal government. Thanks. Thanks for being with us this morning. We really appreciate having the time. Thank you so much. I love being here. Um, this um, Georgetown Fellows gig this semester has been wonderful, and I've had the chance also to uh, speak in other classes. Professors asked me to speak, and there have been some other extracurricular uh, activities, so I've enjoyed every minute of it. That's great to hear. So today we wanted to talk a little bit on a specific topic rather than do like broad strokes of of your career we're really interested in your foreign policy work uh, time on house committee so one of the questions that i think is hotly debated just sort of as a broader foreign policy idea is the effectiveness of sanctions and i guess i would just be interested in your take as to their pros, their cons, when they're appropriate, and some of the alternatives that are out there to sanctions as foreign policy tools. That's a very good topic, and dissertations have been written about them, um, books have been written, uh, how effective are sanctions, uh, should we use them? You know, there are only so many tools in our diplomatic toolbox that you can use, and uh, we don't like to levy sanctions on anyone or any any institution or any particular uh, person, but sometimes there are no good choices left. Uh, international sanctions, always applied, are the best sanctions. Uh, unilateral sanctions, where it's only the U.S. applying them, they're never as effective. There's no doubt about it. Um, for example, sanctions that were placed on South Africa because of their terrible apartheid policy, they were very effective because they were applied by just about, I'm not going to say every country, that's not true, but a, a great many important countries applied them. Those are very effective. 
when the United States uses them alone, they're not as effective. And any one country uses them alone, they're not as effective. So there is no doubt that when the United States places sanctions on a country on our own, for example, Venezuela and Cuba, they are not as effective as if other countries join in. However, that does not mean that because they won't be as effective that we should not do uh, what we feel is right. Uh, in, in the case of Cuba, we've had an embargo, which is different than sanctions. Targeted sanctions is, is what we're doing in Venezuela. We've had an embargo for, for many, many, many years. And then in the Helms-Burton legislation called the Libertad Act, uh, Lincoln Diaz-Balart, a former member of Congress, he codified the, uh, the embargo, meaning that, meaning that he put it into law. The embargo is a tool only by the executive branch, and, and they're the ones that do it. We Congress can do it too, but uh, we really, it, it's really the powers that are vested in the president according to our constitution. We have, we're ruled by Article 2, Section 8, for example, the power of the purse and what we can do. But uh, Article 2 talks about the, uh, uh, I mean, other articles talk about the presidential powers, legislative powers. So until the sanctions, the embargo was codified into law recently by Congressman uh, Diaz-Balart, the president had the power to lift the embargo. Had had uh, Lincoln not, not Abraham Lincoln, but Lincoln <laughs> Diaz-Balart of Miami, had Lincoln Diaz-Balart not put the embargo in place, there is no doubt in my mind that President Obama would have lifted the embargo on Cuba because he established people-to-people -people co uh, con travel, uh, loosened the remittances legislation, uh, uh, loosened a lot of the sanctions-based policy that we had on Cuba. But the embargo was law from the Clinton administration as a result of the Brothers to the Rescue shoot-down. These were international um, uh, flights by a humanitarian group, and then Castro shot them from the sky, killing three American citizens and one U.S. resident as a result of the Brothers to the Rescue shootdown in February 24, 1996. Um, the legislation was signed codifying the embargo, the total sanctions on Cuba, and so President Obama, years later, was not able to lift the sanctions, the embargo. But other countries, notably Venezuela right now, are uh, getting sanctioned. But they're not, it's not an embargo. It's it's different. Embargo is for the whole country, different uh, different segments of the society. But Venezuela is not under an embargo. They do have we do have targeted sanctions against individuals who have been violating the human rights of Venezuelans. Venezuelans right now there are about 150 sanctioned individuals and or companies in Venezuela that are sanctioned by the U.S because of their human rights violations or because they're part of the Maduro uh, regime. Other countries may have put sanctions on their own, but it's mostly the United States taking action. I believe in sanctions legislation because it is one way for us 
to say we're against this kind of government and this is what uh, what we think should happen. We should not prop up an evil dictator. So when do you think sanctions against individual um, actors, as you were talking about in the Maduro regime, versus broader sanctions against doing business with uh, parts of a country or with a country are more appropriate? So Very good question. I think that what uh, what is being done by OFAC, the Office of Foreign Assets Control, which is mainly the big agency in Treasury that does this, has been doing, has been very good. They've been looking at the Maduro uh, mafia in, in Venezuela, who controls what, and uh, they've been saying anyone who's propping up uh, the regime in power, uh, they should be sanctioned. That means, in the way we're doing in Venezuela, that, that they cannot enter the United States. It doesn't mean that we arrest them in their country. We have no jurisdiction over that. Uh, they they can go on pilfering uh, the the country's coffers while the people starve. There's nothing we can do about that. But we can control what happens in our country. We can control who comes in and, and uh, what the bank accounts are. And many of these guys in Maduro's inner circles have been sanctioned by us, meaning they can't come to the U.S. It gives us the right to... Uh, because they're, we label them as criminals, confiscate their property oh, using the courts, etc. You just can't do it willy-nilly. Um, and uh, confiscate their assets. Um, sometimes their family members are, are sanctioned as well. But they can continue to stay in their country. Um, they're not under house arrest, obviously. Maduro rules uh, Venezuela with, uh, with an iron fist. We can only control what happens here. So they're not able to do uh, a lot of their uh, their trips to Disney World, which they have enjoyed, and you know their fast boats, <laughs> and they always have nice homes in Miami Beach, etc. So we can we can go after those assets that are that are based in the United States. So they're individuals tied to the Maduro regime, and uh, and we we go after their assets, and we control whether they can or can't come to the U.S. And that's more or less the, the basis of our sanctions policy in, in Venezuela. I believe that the Trump administration will be very strong against the Maduro regime for the time that President Trump is, is president. Secretary Pompeo agrees with it. Uh, John Bolton, the national security advisor, agrees with it. And uh, those are the folks who, who decide, who are deciding on this uh, uh, action in Venezuela. We should expect more rather than less sanctions. So I guess one of the pushbacks on sanctions that is commonly espoused is that sometimes they can, if they're not as targeted as oligarchs in Russia or Maduro's cronies, um, that they can they can have an impact on the broader public of a country that's already having trouble, right? Um, so I guess one of the questions that I'm really interested in learning more about when it comes to sanctions is how you balance the punishment of a country for human rights violations without maybe further putting the people behind the eight ball. It's an excellent question. In the case of Venezuela, we have sent 535 metric tons, I saw a representation of it, 
it's it's a lot of humanitarian aid to Venezuela. Maduro would not let our planes land, so we went to Colombia, right at the border of Colombia and Venezuela, and uh, a USAID head uh, Mark Green, who's a former U.S. ambassador to Tanzania, uh, he's a, a USAID is a wonderful humanitarian organization. They were administering the the handing off of the aid. They've done it worldwide. It's one of the big missions of USAID. And he's a good person to interview on this issue of, of sanctions and humanitarian aid. And unfortunately, what Maduro did with the aid, because it came from the Yankee imperialists, which is what he calls the United States, he put containers on the bridge. There are only certain bridges that connect Colombia to Venezuela. He put huge containers so that people couldn't use the bridge and supplies were not able to go into Venezuela. It was a very uh, heart-wrenching situation because in Venezuela, there is no, there's very little food, uh, at least not, not like there used to be. Venezuela used to be a very rich country with an abundance of natural resources. And now uh, there's no clean water, there's no, uh, there's no food, there's no medicine. And for the listeners, you're going to say, "Well, that's because we have embark. We have we have an embargo." Remember that I said on the onsite that uh, there is no embargo on Venezuela. Anything, and there's no, even in the case of Cuba, food and medicine have never are not covered. There's no embargo on food and medicine. People in Cuba don't have food and don't have medicine like they want to, not because of U.S. policy but because of the failed policy of the regime. And in Venezuela, that example is very stark because we only started sanctioning this government uh, recently. As you know, uh, Hugo Chavez was in charge of Venezuela for 14 years. When he died, uh, he named Nicolás Maduro retired, not a retired, uh, an ex-school bus driver to be his successor. Nothing wrong with school bus drivers. They're wonderful people. But he, he was not a man who had climbed up you know, from the military or from, uh, from the, the bureaucracy. He was just somebody I, thought, I think that they thought that they could use. But Maduro has stayed on there. And that's when we started with the sanctions, when the things situation got really out of hand, when uh, elections were not being honored when uh, the National Assembly won their election and there were majority of opposition leaders, then Nicolás Maduro said, nope, I'm disbanding the National Assembly and I'm putting on, National Assembly is their way of saying Congress, and in its place, I'm going to put in a constituents assembly. And it went from, like, I'm gonna put a number, 400 people uh, in not a real election, but 400 people who followed the Maduro regime line. And that became the Congress. Well, that got everybody upset in Venezuela. Massive protests. And when I say massive, I mean, we, we consider a million people here in D.C. to be a massive protest. That's nothing in Venezuela. There were so many people protesting. And that's when we started ratcheting up sanctions, even though... The first person that did sanctions against Venezuela was President Obama because uh, Hugo Chavez was 
just not doing the right thing. So President Obama first imposed some sanctions on Venezuela. Then the Trump administration has really gone uh, doing the right thing with sanctions, but um, never sanctions on food and medicine. And in fact, what we've tried to do is to send food and medicine uh, to Venezuela. He does not uh, allow them to come in because they're from the Yankee imperialists. So we said, okay, how about if they come from France or somebody else? And he says, no, we, we know that trick. Uh, we're just not going to accept it. So what he did, what Nicolas Maduro did on the day that we were trying to give him humanitarian aid, just lots of humanitarian aid, he sent tons of food and medicine to Cuba to, sh to tell people, look, not only do we have enough food and medicine, but we have enough to send it to Cuba. And of course, that, that that's just not true. They don't. We don't know what was really in those containers, but... Uh, um, the people in Venezuela have lost weight. Um, they're all sick. Uh, they can't get treatment. But it's not because the U.S. is putting an embargo on food and medicine. That makes sense. Um, beyond sanctions, um, or, or in addition to sanctions, what other types of non-military response do you think the United States can and should take to... Um, address human rights violations by Venezuela or, by, or the Maduro regime or in general in other or in general. situations? Well, they are very limited tools in our toolbox. Um, short of going to war, short of military intervention, we can uh, restrict travel, we can restrict assets, uh, we can only do what is within our control. And uh, th those people will be able to function without a problem in their own country, uh, and there are no restrictions that obviously that we can place on someone in Russia or, or in uh, in Venezuela or in Cuba. That's uh, we just don't have it in our power to do so, and, and that's why President Trump says all options are on the table. It gives people the impression that the military option is is being considered. I don't think that President Trump will do will take military action, even though there are a lot of people in Venezuela and, and Venezuelan Americans outside who are calling for that action to take place. Because President Trump uh, campaigned on a non-intervention strat, uh, you know, administration. He wants us out of Iraq. He wants us out of Afghanistan. He wants us out of Syria. I can't see him putting us in, in Venezuela. But some people are saying, well, now Maduro's days are numbered. Well, that's usually using the, uh, the rational actor model. Uh, what is happening is that uh, uh, a normal person thinking, wow, how can I survive this? This is just a terrible situation. Maduro doesn't think that way. He thinks like a Daniel Ortega in Nicaragua, like a, like a Raul Castro in Cuba. He will just hunker down. As long as he has the military and the security forces with him, he will stay in power. So the all options are on the table. I don't know what will or will, won't happen, but it's it's unlikely that uh, that the president, President Trump, will take military action. But some some people are urging him to do so. I don't I just don't think so. So all we're left with are economic sanctions and that kind of targeted sanctions. Now, any anybody who is in cahoots with Maduro, propping him up, 
uh, economically, uh, they're going to see that if they do business in the U.S., that's where we can get them. As long if you're if you're an enterprise that operates solely in Venezuela, well, we will sanction you. But if you don't have any U.S. tie-in, it's hard for for us to have any economic impact on you. But we have sanctioned PDVSA, which is his oil business, and uh, and they have ties to the U.S. So that that hurts him. Um, we've sanctioned a gold mining company. And if they have anything to do with the U.S., that would hurt them as well. So they're very limited um, options, but uh, the administration, the Trump administration, is looking at all options. So speaking of all options, and this is sort of more general and away from Venezuela, I don't think that these other options might be appropriate in this case, but I'm kind of curious about the carrot uh, tools that we might have in our uh, toolkit as far as conducting international relations and what kind of sort of preventative measures might be able to be taken as far as like aid, tech transfer, diplomatic support, inclusion in sort of the international uh, governmental organizations. What sort of tools do we have that might be like preventative and more carrots and less sticks to sort of... That's a good question and a legitimate question, but it really is a question that can only be applied to a rational actor. You don't, uh, uh, you don't apply, if, if you think that way with Vladimir Putin, um, he's playing you. If you think that way with Nicolas Maduro, he's playing you. They have all been part, all of these countries have been part of the international stage forever. Uh, Venezuela has never not been a, a dictatorship forever. Uh, now it is. Now you have rigged elections. You have Maduro saying, I'm going to disband the Congress. Uh, you have uh, all kinds of anti-democracy actions, but they were part of de- uh, all the democratic uh, uh, candy, all of the carrots. Not even, not even carrots. It was really even, even yummier. They were like, <laughs> like grandma's uh, mini sandwich creams filled with vanilla, vanilla cream. This is what I'm having for breakfast right now as they interview me. Um, they were really sweet and good. That was Venezuela. And Cuba once upon a time. So they were. We all had those carrots for them. They earned the carrots. Nobody was. No one was paternalistically, but bestowing them uh, on them. But um, by their own actions, they made themselves pariah states. When you uh, in Cuba, when you only allow one political party to exist, the Communist Party, uh, that then you bring on trouble to yourself. If you were to start, if you were to run as a, a candidate in, in Cuba and say that you wanted to start the Green Party, well, their response to that would be that they would imprison you because there, there's only one political party allowed in Cuba. That's the Communist Party. They're only state-sponsored uh, journalists. Um, you don't really have a, a free press like we have here, a state-owned media. And in Venezuela, it was the same thing. Uh, they were part of the world community. It was not that they were, uh, they've always been ostracized. But the reason that more than 50 countries have now joined the United States in recognizing Juan Guaido as the, as the legitimate interim president of Venezuela is because of the actions that Maduro took against Venezuelans. He's killed 
opposition leaders. He has jailed opposition leaders. He has jailed rank and file folks. People have disappeared. He has turned his uh, the country into his own personal piggy bank at the expense of the people. So dictators bring this on to themselves. It's not like the United States is saying, well, you, you're a bad guy. We don't like the way you do business. We're going to sanction you. Um, and then people say, well, you know, we should we should offer them something that they would would turn into uh, motherhood and apple pie. Mm-hmm. I mean, we wish that it could happen. They're just, uh, there are bad people in the world. Uh, Putin is one of them, and, and Maduro is one of them, and Chavez before him was one of them, and Castro and Daniel Ortega. These are people who don't allow free and fair and transparent elections, and they're just bad actors. Yeah, so basically, if you're dealing with bad actors, you have to be a realist. You can't really get into the sort of... You have to rely more on the sticks and way less on the well, carrots. Or only because they had the carrots. They were part of the the international community. They were well-respected. It's not like Venezuela was created to be a dictatorship. It grew up as a democracy. Simón Bolívar, the, you know, the, the great patriot of, uh, of Venezuela, he would hang his head in shame to see what has happened to his country. So we've been there, done that, and we've seen that that doesn't work. When you look the other way, as, uh, as people are being shot in the street, it's, then you're part of the problem. And we decided to not, not turn the other cheek. We, we decided to take action. Okay, moving from foreign policy, um, I want to talk a little bit about your experience in state government in Florida and um, the lessons that you think the uh, House of Representatives can take from state, uh, from state governments, either in practice and in function or in terms of actual policy ideas. I'm particularly thinking of your work uh, with prepaid college in Florida. And, um, that is just an excellent idea because Boy, we really need to look at state governments. State government is where democracy is really working. The state legislatures, hats off to them in each, each and every state. Maybe there's some that are dysfunctional. Um, I don't know about that. But I know that in Florida, we don't meet throughout the year. We have certain days of uh, legislative session and then certain days of committee hearing. And we get the work done. It r- runs over, but not by that much. And then you have special sessions. It's becoming more and more of a full-time job, but that's where uh, government works the best. It's also where the citizens are more connected. They go to Tallahassee, as difficult a place as it is to get to, mm-hmm. uh, because, well, it's just been our state capital forever, but uh, it, it's hard to get to Tallahassee. But citizens feel really connected to to their state representatives and to their state senators and members of congress you know we represent so many more people like i don't know is it 780,000 it's just a lot of people and so maybe some members don't go home every weekend if you're from california that's an awful long time to get back there and come back for the weekend and uh, florida we had no problems because we have great flights, mm-hmm. and uh, it's only two hours, ten minutes. So people tend to be closer to the state legislators than they are to the members of Congress. 
And I think that the closer you are to people, the better a job that you do. You're, you're more attuned to the needs of your community. And the Florida prepaid tuition, gosh, that was one of my, my proudest achievements. I did that not by myself, but with a, a gentleman named Curtis uh, Peterson. He was a, a, a state senator from, uh, from Lakeland, Florida, real conservative, good old boy. And uh, we worked together to pass that. It was only the second state in the country to pass it, but we never thought that it would be as successful as it's been. It's the most successful, the biggest, and uh, it, it's just, uh, it's my, my proudest, my proudest bill. Can you describe a little bit what, what, what the policy is? So it allows you to lock in today's college tuition prices, even though your child was just born, may not be going to college until, you know, 18 years. But when that child turns 18, all the college uh, uh, tuition will be paid. Now it's gotten more sophisticated. They cover room and board, and they cover fees because you as college students know you pay an awful lot of money in fees, whether it's athletic fees and even if you don't go to games or whatever, and, and health fees. Oh, it's a, it's a real racket. College tuition, it really is. Congrats to you guys. I hope you get to graduate without too much college debt, but it's a, it's a struggle. Now we have all kinds of plans for the Florida prepaid college tuition plan, but it started out as just a tuition uh, structure so that uh, you can lock in today's prices even though your child won't be uh, in college until much later. And of course, the younger you sign your child up, the better off you'll be. Now you can transfer it to other, other colleges, private, for example, you can buy one in Florida and it can transfer to Georgetown. However, the parent has to pay the difference between what the Florida tuition is and what the Georgetown tuition is. So we only cover as much as Florida would cover. And as you know, that you guys at Georgetown are play, paying a pretty penny. So it really is best if your child is gonna go to school at, at, at one of the colleges and universities, and we have some fine ones in Florida, uh, but the parent then has to pay the difference between public school tuition and private. But it's been, uh, uh, it's never had any trouble. It's it's always uh, uh, fiscally sound, and uh, I'm very happy with the way that it's been administered. You mentioned that being in state government and being close to the people is really, really important. Are there any other lessons that you took from being part of state government that you brought with you uh, when you came to Washington that sort of informed your time here? So really, the, the being closer to the people is, is number one. Uh, I would say to keep up with the news, to know what is happening in your local community. And if you don't have time to do that, then go to the grocery store every week and every day to find out what people are saying, because people are not shy. Once upon a time, maybe um, politicians were in an ivory tower, as they say, but that's that just doesn't happen anymore. Everyone is really in touch with their district, with their uh, with their. Uh, they're a member of Congress with their state rep, and they're not afraid to come up to you in sweet or not sweet manners and tell you, you dummy, you did this, and I wish you hadn't done it. So you get the, a, a good mouthful from people when you go to CVS or when you go to uh, 
uh, to any supermarket. I was going to say Publix, but I don't think you have Publixes here. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the Florida one. Or Winn-Dixie. Do you have Winn-Dixies here? I no? So. no say, <laughs> I don't know what they have. So Publix and Winn-Dixies, they're popular in, in Miami. And uh, how about Trader Joe's? Trader Joe's is popular. Yeah, Joe's. and Whole Foods. You know, that's for the little... Uh, little pricier but uh, yes. but but people will come up to you and they will tell you so so be kind to people uh, hear them out and uh, and I hope you act accordingly because you know, it doesn't mean that people who come up to you are, is the barometer because most people won't but but it's important to listen to people and, and see what they have to say good ideas come from anybody even as Mark Twain would use the word, a rapscallion. (laughs) That's a no good person. (laughs) Well, just to wrap up our conversation today, I really appreciated our conversation, especially about foreign policy and and sanctions, and of course your time in state government. Very controversial, yes, sanctions. You really hit, you asked some really good questions. (laughs) Well, thank you. Um, But I was wondering, we were- And honestly, you can write papers on that, (laughs) the effectiveness of sanctions. And like I say, multilateral sanctions is the way to go if we could only get other countries to agree with well, us. Well, I'm looking for a thesis topic. So yeah, maybe yeah, I'll do that. very good. Um, but I was wondering if you can think of any um, books or articles or podcasts or anything that people should look up if they want to learn more about what we talked about today. Oh, boy. On, on, the, on the topic of sanctions, a very good topic. And those students listening, if you don't have a, a topic for your mm-hmm. thesis or dissertation, uh, use Venezuela as a, as a case study because it's evolving and you have a lot of uh, fresh uh, writings about uh, why we're doing what we're doing. So uh, just a lot going on with sanctions. State government, I firmly believe the state government, that's the cradle of democracy. So many good things are happening there. The most important legislation is being, is being uh, discussed at the state level, not necessarily in, in Congress. And uh, uh, just do, do what you want to do and, and follow your passion. Uh, there's so much that you can do in foreign policy. I'm excited about uh, people who, who see that they have a voice and a say in our country's future. This morning when we first came in, I told you that a, a, a mayor of a small town in Florida, of Miramar, Florida, just announced this morning that he's running for president. I don't even know his name, but I said, my golly, this is just, this is a new phenomenon. Everyone thinks that they can be president. God love him. You know, I, I don't know who he is. I look forward to hearing about him. It, it's uh, it's great. People have a, uh, are really interested in improving our country, and I think it's good. Great. So I think we're all set. Thanks for your time. Would you like some dessert? All right. I'm okay. Thank you. the podcast we'd really appreciate for you to uh, subscribe on apple podcast share with your friends like it on soundcloud tweet facebook do whatever it is that makes you happy but whatever share whatever whatever way you can share our content we'd really really appreciate it